0: Introduction to the book With Pleasure, Thoughts on the Human Nature Rather, thoughts on the nature of human sexuality Oscar Wilde, the master of paradox Once intoned I adore the simple pleasures They're the last refuge of the complex Unquote. Unfortunately, sexual pleasure, as Wilde discovered, is seldom simple. In many ways, Wilde is emblematic of the vagaries of sexual politics, having been disgraced and jailed for his homosexuality. What started as a simple but brazen libel trial initiated by Wilde against the Marquess of Queensbury for claiming that Wilde was, quote, posing as a sodomite, unquote, and thereby adversely influencing his son, Lord Alfred Douglas, ultimately backfired against Wilde when evidence obtained from previous lovers irrefutably demonstrated that he was, in fact, a sodomite. This is a book about sex and about sexual pleasure in particular. In it, we assert the obvious that sex is pleasurable and examine the myriad implications of this seemingly innocuous assertion from other evo- four evolutionary, cultural, and psychological theories of human sexual expression. Our point of takeoff is a duality of human sexuality. Sex is pleasurable, true, but it is also necessary for the survival of the human species. The long standing tension between the procreative and the pleasurable aspects of sex has befuddled theoreticians. Or thera, theory, Titians, ranging from Aristotle to Freud. The failure to adequately resolve this conflict has resulted in the conceptual muddle of the present day, in which sexual enjoyment is sometimes pathologized as an obsessive-compulsive disorder, rather than celebrated as an evolutionary adaptation extraordinaire. The notion that sex is pleasurable appears at first glance almost too obvious to merit additional comment. However, the pleasurability of specific sexual acts is not always so obvious. One may question for example whether sadomasochism is pleasurable. The influential French philosopher Michel Foucault Answered in the affirmative. The practice of S&M is a creation of pleasure. And that's why S&M is really a subculture. It's a process of invention. SM is the use of a strategic relationship as a source of pleasure. Physical pleasure. This possibility of using our bodies as a possible source of very numerous pleasures is something that is very important end of excerpt one may similarly question the pleasurability of anal intercourse although many gay men enjoy anal sex not all do nor do all enjoy both roles insertive and receptive equally nevertheless anal sex can be pleasurable for both parties it is therefore strange that female pleasure in anal intercourse is so often overlooked in heterosexual activities it is presumed that anal sex is instigated and enjoyed solely by the male insertive partner never the female receptive partner Yet there is clearly no anatomical basis for this gender disparity. An anus is an anus. As Eve Sedgwick observes, quote, although there is no reason to suppose that women experience in some imaginary quantitative sense less anal eroticism than men do, no one even pretends to name or describe, never mind value, the anus as a site of women's active desire. Lesbians, we hasten to add, also practice various forms of anal eroticism. In general, however, the inherent pleasures of sex are widely appreciated. This being the case, why is pleasure so often overlooked in theoretical discussions of human sexual behavior? And why do cultural, historical, and religious treatises so often fail to emphasize this readily apparent characteristic of human sexuality? These are among the many topics to be examined Reproduction and pleasure. From the pristine vantage point of religious, political, and evolutionary doctrine, it is sometimes argued that the sole function of human sexuality is reproduction. As a consequence, Reproductive expressions of sexuality are deemed illicit, immoral, or illogical. However, we believe the primacy of reproduction to be vastly overemphasized and the insistence on procreation as the end-all of human sexuality to be inherently misguided. Although, according to some, dogs, pigs, and sheep copulate exclusively to reproduce, this clearly is not the case for more advanced species such as the higher primates, especially humans. Indeed, we shall argue that at least in humans, sexuality has undergone a functional bifurcation so that human sexuality now serves pleasure no less than procreation. As we shall show, this duality of purpose is evident physiologically, psychologically, and culturally. In other words, contrary to beliefs fostered by the prevailing Western Judeo-Christian tradition, people were meant to enjoy sex. Of course, according to the theory of evolution via natural selection, the ultimate function of sex is genetic reproduction. In other words, the purpose of sex is to propagate parental genes and thereby to reproduce the species. The evolutionary function of sexual pleasure in contrast is to motivate people to engage in precisely those conjugal activities, i.e., penile-vaginal intercourse, likely to result in conception. In the language of evolutionary psychology, sexual pleasure is an adaptation that solves the problem of sexual motivation in humans and the higher primates an adaptation as an evolved solution to a problem that is relevant to either survival or reproduction. Pleasure is thus the motive force behind procreation, but the impetus to provide it provides is not specific to reproductive sex. The sexual drive can be satisfied by any of a number of diverse non-reproductive behaviors. This loophole in the evolutionary scheme permits sexual pleasure to be co-opted to other purposes, such as the facilitation of bonding and the reduction of personal and interpersonal tensions. With regard to the evolution of human sexuality, it therefore appears that pleasure is no less central than procreation. Sex isn't just for reproduction anymore, it's also for pleasure. The intense pleasure that accompanies sex may serve to motivate copulation and thereby facilitate reproduction, but this is no longer its sole function. Instead, human sexuality has bifurcated, reproduction taking one route, unadulterated pleasure another. In other words, humans experience pleasure for pleasure's sake, not necessarily for reproduction's sake. Of course, it's exceedingly difficult to disentangle the pleasurable aspects of human sexuality from the reproductive. The two conceptions are inextricably linked in the human psyche via the simultaneous identifications of sex with reproduction s and r s equals r and sex with pleasure s equals p a simple contradiction then yields the false identification of pleasure with reproduction p equals r the persuasiveness of this logic is beautifully exemplified by the medieval european belief that the only fecund sexual encounters are those that yield mutual enjoyment to the partners involved. Thus, it was believed that female as well as male orgasm was required to ensure conception. For without orgasm, the fair sex would would neither desire nuptial embraces nor have pleasure in them, nor conceive by them." As recently as the turn of the century, the Reference Handbook of Medical Sciences advised that "...conception is probably more likely to occur when full venereal excitement is experienced." Nevertheless, there is In fact, no necessary link between the pleasurability of sex and its reproductive function. The imperative to copulate could just as well be driven by hormones, for example. Perhaps the following thought experiment will help to clarify this point. by this point imagine a man with Herculean control over his reproductive system who when sexually aroused can decide to have an orgasm without ejaculating ejaculate without orgasm or ejaculate with orgasm such a man would have no need of contraceptive devices because he could freely enjoy heterosexual intercourse without the possibility of impregnating a female partner. If, on the other hand, he and his partner desire desired offspring, their attempts to conceive could be conducted on his part at least with business-like aplomb unencumbered by the threat of the loss of self-control that often accompanies orgasm. For this man, then, the reproductive and pleasurable aspects of sex would be entirely distinct, provided that we focus exclusively on orgasmic pleasure and neglect the precedent pleasure that accompanies the sexual act itself. Though fictional, perhaps this example is not too far-fetched, to most people, male orgasm and ejaculation are nearly synonymous, in that orgasm is viewed as the psychological non-concomitant of the physical act of expelling sperm. The prevalence of this view, notwithstanding male orgasm and ejaculation, are in fact separate phenomena. For instance, some men ejaculate without orgasm as a result of damage to the central nervous system. On the other hand, experiments in which the brain has been artificially stimulated demonstrate that men can experience orgasmic pleasures without ejaculation. Young still infertile boys are also capable of orgasm, as are postmenopausal women. Physiologically, then, reproductive sex need not be pleasurable and, as is well known, pleasurable sex need not be reproductive. Furthermore, reproductive sex, that is, penile-vaginal intercourse between infertile rather, between fertile individuals, constitutes but a minuscule fraction of the range of human sexual expression. Alternative sexual practices, such as masturbation, oral and anal sex, petting, and so on, are widespread. Even fertile vaginal intercourse is practiced far more often than necessary to ensure the continuation of the species. Therefore, while procreation is indisputably the ultimate function of sex, This reproductive aspect alone cannot account for the variety of meanings and practices encompassed by human sexuality. Such an understanding requires consideration of the ancillary concept of sexual pleasure. The notion of pleasure provides a unifying framework in which to consider the various meanings and subsidiary functions of human sexuality. Not only are non-reproductive sexual behaviors common, the motivation for most sexual encounters is also non-reproductive. Although the pursuit of pleasure is undoubtedly the most prevalent rationale for engaging is-sex. It is by no means the only function or meaning of sex. Sex satisfies many needs beside procreation and pleasure. Sex may be used, for example, to express feelings of intimacy and love for a partner as a means of reducing intra- or interpersonal tensions. The best part of fighting is making up or to strengthen an existing emotional bond. These functions are largely byproducts of the pleasurable <coughs> <coughs> pleasurability of sex, in that their successful expression depends on sex being enjoyable. Sex fosters intimacy, for example, by providing a means for the giving and sharing of pleasure. In this way, Sexual pleasure forms the basis for the myriad meanings of human sexuality prevalent in contemporary Western society. The rise and legitimization in Western societies of the pursuit of sexual pleasure can be traced to the sexual revolution that marked the decline of Victorianism at the turn of the 20th century. In Victorian America, many medical and moral authorities advised the sexual intercourse be limited solely to the purpose of procreation, even in marriage. Pleasure, when mentioned at all, was linked to lustful, bestial, and uncivilized behavior. More commonly, it was simply not discussed. For most 19th century Americans, to speak of sex was to speak of procreation. Unquote. By the end of the century, however, a sea change was evident in popular attitudes regarding sex, as more Americans came to view intercourse as an undeniable source of visceral pleasure rather than as merely an instrument of reproduction. In the words of historian Estelle Friedman, over the course of the 19th century as white American women bore fewer and fewer children the reproductive function of sexuality became less central although some middle-class Victorians may have heeded advice to limit sexual intercourse others experienced sexuality as a non procreative act the evidence of contraceptive use, abortion, and homosexuality, of attention tension over eroticism within American sexual ideology, and of the political defense of a sexuality limited to reproduction all suggest that Americans struggle to come to terms with the potential of an erotic, non-procreative sexuality. End of excerpt. Furthermore, as we argue later, the expansion of pleasure over procreation as the dominant meaning of human sexuality in the 20th century is adaptive for the species as a whole. A focus on pleasure rather than reproduction encourages alternative forms of sexual expression both in the practices selected, for example, oral sex and mutual masturbation, and in the choice of partners, either of the same or opposite sex. Non-procreative encounters permit sexual desires to be satisfied without the risk of increasing the population of our already overburdened planet. Some of these activities are also associated with beneficial health outcomes such as decreased transmission of sexually transmitted diseases including the human immunodeficiency virus that causes AIDS. The ideas outlined here will be expanded upon in the chapters that follow. At this point, however, it might be instructive to consider the gr- in greater detail just what we mean by sexual pleasure. Sexual pleasure, what a concept. What is sexual pleasure? Unfortunately, the concept denoted here by sexual pleasure, quote unquote, is a rather slippery creature weighed down by considerable pop psychological baggage and subject to cross-cultural and cross-historical variation nevertheless it is desirable to have some definition of this concept however inexact to provide an anchor for subsequent discussions with this in mind we offer the following very simple and regrettably vague definition. Sexual pleasure consists of those positively valued feelings induced by sexual stimuli. Notice that this conceptualization encompasses a broad range of sexual pleasures, from the soothing sensations of sensual massage to the explosion of feeling that accompanies orgasm. Although the positive sensations we are calling sexual pleasure can be evoked, to some extent, by erotic thoughts, fantasies, and direct neural stimulation, we assume here for the sake of simplicity that stimulation of the genitals, breasts, or other relevant body parts, i.e., that's to say the erogenous zones, is necessary to initiate these feelings. According to this simplified model, the experience of sexual pleasure begins when the skin receptors in one or more erogenous zones are stimulated and ends with a positive evaluation within the brain that the sensations experienced are indeed both pleasurable and sexual in nature. interpretive function of the brain in the experience of sexual pleasure cannot be overemphasized the sensory signals arriving at the brain following stimulation of an erogenous zone are not inherently pleasurable or even inherently sexual instead Interpretation of these signals by the brain is required for the impinging sensations to be recognized as sexually pleasurable. It is this interpretive stage that admits the profound influences of culture and context in the experience of sexual pleasure. With regard to context, it is often claimed that sex isn't really sex for a prostitute plying her trade. Sex with a lover, however, is an entirely different matter. A rather extreme example of the pervasive influence of culture is provided by the Manus, a pre World War II society in Papua New Guinea. Among the sex-negative madness, begin of excerpt, intercourse between husband and wife was considered to be sinful or degrading, and was undertaken only in strict secrecy. Women considered coitus to be an abomination, which they had to endure even painfully until they produced a child. End of excerpt. Unfortunately the definition of sexual pleasure provided here neglects several of its more salient aspects including the pleasure of giving pleasure. <coughs> For example in the butch femme lesbian culture of the 1940s and 50s the butch partner often derived her greatest erotic satisfaction from pleasuring her femme counterpart quote if I could give her satisfaction to the highest that's what gave me satisfaction Unquote. in such stereotyped role-playing it was neither expected nor desired that the femme should reciprocate this does not mean however that the butch's pleasure necessarily lacked physical component according to Elizabeth Lapovsky Kennedy and Madeline Davis many butches were and remain spontaneously orgasmic their excitement levels peaks to orgasm when they make love orally or digitally to a woman the nature of this orgasm is unclear some describe it as physical while others think it is mental. The popular 1993 film "The Crying Game," can be used to illustrate one of the main aspects of our conception of sexual pleasure, namely, the interpretive role of the mind. Politics and mayhem, notwithstanding, this Academy Award or the Academy award-winning film's plot follows the basic modern love story up to a point. Thus boy meets girl, boy falls in love with girl, boy and girl decide to have sex. But then, in the pivotal sex scene, the boy discovers, much to his dismay, that the girl is really a guy, penis and all. The boy responds by vomiting uncontrollably. Why? Wasn't the boy in love or at least in lust? And wasn't he also highly aroused sexually? So what triggered his disgust? Presumably, his reaction sprang from his brain rather than his heart. Despite his intense attraction and physiological arousal, this encounter was no longer interpreted as heterosex but was instead homosex even with love and lust the circumstances were no longer acceptable and therefore no longer arousing to him as conceptualized here sexual pleasure encompasses a loosely defined collection of physiological and psychological responses. Physiologically, it appears that the capacity for sexual pleasure is hardwired, in the sense that it constitutes an innate and universal aspect of human sexual anatomy. However, like any intrinsic characteristic, sexual pleasure is moderated by and unfolds within a particular physical and cultural milieu. It is therefore subject to the cultural vagaries of permissibility and restriction that influence both the overt expression and subjective experience of sexual pleasure. Even if the capacity for sexual pleasure is innate, and in some sense basic, for the human species, one might argue that pleasure is secondary to procreation or reproduction. This is certainly true for the quote-unquote lower species of mammals which if they experience pleasure at all are nonetheless restricted sexually to the reproductively fertile estrous periods of the female. For these animals sexual pleasure if it exists is clearly subservient to reproduction. With the primates however one begins to see a bifurcation in the functional meaning of sex although the reproductive cycle of many non-human primates remains at least partially bound to hormones sexuality is no longer entirely restricted by the female cycle in humans the divergence of the reproductive and non reproductive is even more striking. Essentially, free of the hormonal regulation of sexual desire, women can and do engage in sex at any time in their cycle, irrespective of fertility status. For men and women, Pleasure is not dependent on fecundity. Sexual desire is evident in postmenopausal women and in prepubescent children of both sexes. Furthermore, human sexual anatomy is specialized for pleasure no less than procreation. The sole function of the clitoris, for example, is the generation of pleasure pleasure not reproduction also provides the most parsimonious explanation of the presence of numerous non-obvious erogenous zones such as ears toes and the backs of kneecaps similarly the wide variation in sexual practices observed across cultures and even within cultures is largely inexplicable within a reproductively oriented explanatory framework. Psychologically, pleasure drives the human desire for sex and also provides the foundation for ancillary sexual functions such as emotional bonding. In sum, the evidence suggests that the pleasurable and procreative aspects of human sexuality are conceptually, anatomically, and psychologically distinct. Standing on the shoulders of giants Naturally We are not the first authors to examine the concept of pleasure. Philosophers ranging from Aristotle and Plato to Michel Foucault have also had much to say on this topic. As have psychologists including Havelock Ellis and Simon Freud, anthropologists such as Margaret Mead, Bronislaw Malinowski, And Lionel Tiger and of course the modern sexologists Alfred Kinsey and William Masters and Virginia Johnson hence it seems appropriate at this point to briefly comment upon some previous conceptualizations of sexual pleasure not surprisingly interest in the concept of pleasure both sexual and otherwise, has a long history. For Aristotle, and to a lesser extent Plato, the central concern was whether pleasure was always good, always bad, or contingent upon the motives and restraint exercised by the actor. In the Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle summarizes the various arguments for the position that pleasure is bad, including the notion that, quote, pleasures are an obstacle to good sense. The greater the joy one feels, that is to say, for example, in sexual intercourse, the greater the obstacle. For no one is capable of rational insight while enjoying sexual relations. Ultimately, however, Aristotle rejects this argument, noting that, It is the pursuit of excess, but not the pursuit of necessary pleasures that makes a man bad. Simon Freud made elaborate use of the concept of pleasure, most notably in his famous pleasure principle. The pleasure principle is the desire for immediate gratification and tension reduction. It is presumed to be the modus operandi of the id, which is defined in turn as the dynamic chaos of forces that strive for discharge above all else. Tension is perceived as pain, discharged as pleasure. Eating, drinking, and sex such subdue, each subdue a particular tension in accordance with the pleasure principle. More generally, in psychoanalytic theory, particularly as developed in Freud's three contributions to the theory of sexuality, quote, sexuality is divorced from its too close connection with the genitals and is regarded as a more comprehensive bodily function. Having pleasure as its goal and only secondarily coming to serve the ends of reproduction. However, Freud and his followers considered most non reproductive sexuality to be perverse. We term sexual activity perverse when it is renounced the aim of reproduction and follows the pursuit of pleasure as an independent goal, unquote. Similarly, Richard Kraft eving who has been called, quote, the most influential sexual psychologist of the last quarter of the 19th century, unquote, counted among the perversions, quote, Any expression of the sexual impulse which fails to correspond to the purposes of nature, i.e., of procreation. The famous and occasionally inscrutable French philosopher Michael Foucault also devotes considerable attention to the concept of pleasure. Of particular relevance to this book is its exegesis, exegesis of the multiple discourses of sexual pleasure, and their frequent assimilation into an, into a disproportionately moralistic framework. Regarding the sexual mores of the ni- late 19th century, Foucault asks: Was this transformation of sex into discourse? Not governed by the endeavor to expel from reality the forms of sexuality, that we are not amenable, or that we not amenable to this strict economy of reproduction, to say no to unproductive activities, to banish casual pleasures, to reduce or exclude practices whose object, rather object, was not procreation. end of excerpt even in the relatively permissive classical Greek culture sex was unduly scrutinized by philosophers doctors and dream interpreters and so it continues down to the present sex is dissected and debated throughout our culture from the Baroom to the Supreme Court Indeed, it sometimes seems that there is more talk about sex than there is sex itself. As Edward Abbey observes in Down the River with Henry Thoreau, big excerpt, modern men and women are obsessed with the sexual. It is the only realm of primordial adventure still left to most of us. Like apes in a zoo, we spread our energies on the one field of play remaining human lives, otherwise as pretty well caged in by the walls, bars, chains, and locked gates of our industrial culture. End of excerpt. In such a pro- pro- preoccupation with sex natural, healthy, or possibly disturbed and perverted, we believe that the emphasis, some would say overemphasis. Attached to everything sexual is an obvious consequence of the evolutionary significance of sex. People are obsessed with sex quite simply because it's in their genes. All other factors being equal, evolution favors those with a strong libido, provided that the pursuit of sex does not otherwise interfere with the struggle for survival. In non-human animals, the libido is bound by hormones, whereas it is nearly synonymous with the desire for pleasure in humans. Evolutionarily then, a pronounced desire for sexual pleasure is adaptive rather than pathological leading as it should to increased reproductive opportunities unbridled passions however are inimical to civilization hence the institution of laws and regulations to control the overt expression of sexuality and by misguided extension the attempt to restrict the production and distribution of obscene materials thought capable of exciting sexual lusts although the pursuit of pleasure is natural its regulation, to some degree, is nevertheless inevitable. The Varieties of Sexual Experience As a concept, sexual pleasure has numerous discernible connotations. It can denote enjoyment, gratification, sensual delight, satisfaction, and so on. It is also multiplied de- multi- multiply determined, reflecting the interacting influences of nature and culture, as well as the vagaries of the particular historical epoch. In which it unfolds. Whatever the potential of sexual pleasure may be, it is ultimately interpreted and evaluated according to the prevailing social contexts and interpersonal themes of the times. This variety in sexual expression arises because the experience of sexual pleasure is infinitely malleable. When conceived of as when conceived of as sin, sex is experienced with distress and turmoil. When conceptualized as a joyous revelation, it is embraced with both subtle and expansive pleasure. This emphasis on the plasticity of sexual pleasure challenges conventional notions of sexuality in several ways. For example, non-normative behaviors are often deemed non-sexual because they're inconsistent with conceptions of normal sexuality. At various times, Western culture has vilified behaviors such as oral, genital, and penile anal contact as perversions of the quote-unquote natural sexual instinct. These quote-unquote pathological forms of behavior were not acknowledged as belonging to human sexuality, because according to this point of view, sexuality has but a simple function to perpetuate the species. In other cultures, however, oral genital sex is considered neither perverse nor unnatural and in some cases is even recruited for important ritual functions. For example, the Sambia, a warrior culture that inhabits the isolated southeastern highlands of Papua and New Guinea, believe that ingested semen is critical to strength and masculinization. Young boys are therefore expected to perform ritualized fellatio in older boys as an integral component of normal, male psychosocial development Sambia males pass through three distinct sexual stages first they are fellators seeking manhood through the semen of others then after they have accumulated an adequate reserve of semen they become filletes later in the final stages of development all homosexual activity ceases and they're socially recognized as men, with wives, children, and all the accoutrements of heterosexuality. Ritualized homosexual activity is not unique to this group. More than 50 comparable cultures in Melanesia are known to have similar ritual complexes to ensure proper gender development. But at what point does ritual end and sexual enjoyment begin? Robert Stoller and Gilbert Hurd suggest that no clear demarcations exist for the Sambia. Social anthropologists might argue that Sambia, homoerotism, is only a facade, a performance with a precise set of rules, clearly defined as not truly erotic, And openly recognized as an essential step to heterosexuality but our Sambia friends would not recognize such a description of their experience they do not just accept fellatio they want it almost all the boys indulge with fine erotic enthusiasm the plasticity of sexual pleasure and ultimately of sex itself is also evident in the historical record in ancient Greece, the propriety of a sexual behavior was determined by the roles, i.e., dominant, submissive, assumed by participants and by the impact of the behavior, not by the participants' genders or the specific type of behavior. Sexual proscriptions were oriented toward individual responsibilities, that's to say, for example, not being carried away by pleasure, striving for a state of tranquility, moderation, in sexual appetite. Instead of ins- instituting universal codes of conduct, homosexual relationships between men and boys were thus tolerated and even encouraged provided that certain cultural norms were respected. Various forms of prostitution, both male and female, were also prevalent in ancient Greece. Female prostitutes ranged from the lower class, brothel whores, pornoi, with whom sex could be had for mere pennies, to the highly educated, talented courtesans known as hetairai. The hetairai occupied a unique position in Greek society, Unlike other women of their time, the Hetairai were permitted an entry into men's society and the world of political affairs, and often served as advisers and confidants. Of intermediate status were the streetwalkers, who frequented the taverns and thoroughfares of Athens. Of intermediate status were the street walkers who frequented the taverns and thoroughfares of Athens begin of excerpt in Attica there is a girl Europa is her name she has a warm clean lodging she lives a life of shame and anyone can know her though his purse is far from full Dear Zeus, why did you you trouble the change into a bull? Female concubines and male slaves were also available for the pleasure of the Greek citizen, as were, to a much lesser extent, the charms of free women. The devaluation of virginity for lovers rather than wives, of course, is evident in the following poem from Palatine Anthology. You cherish your maidenhead, why should you care? When you go down to Hades, no lovers are there. Love's pleasures are kept for the living alone. In Asheron we are but ashes and bones. The sexual outlets available to male citizens were thus quite varied. Similar though, less conspicuous opportunities also existed for Greek women. Male prostitutes could be procured for a price, and sexual adventures with male slaves were not unheard of. Women might also enjoy the embrace of other women no less in the city-states of Athens and Sparta than on the infamous island of Lesbos. Indeed, quote, at Sparta, love was held in such honor that even the most respectable women became infatuated with girls, unquote. And as always, self-satisfaction provided yet another option for both men and women, The Aegean port of Miletus was an ancient manufacturing and exporting center of the dildo trade. The overall picture of sexual life in ancient Greece is thus one of unfettered freedom, or licentiousness, according to one's tastes. As a late 19th century commentator Dr. William Sanger described the scene, Begin of excerpt into the arts practiced by the graduates of the corinthian academies it is hardly possible to enter at least in a modern tongue even the greeks were obliged to invent verbs to designate the monstrosities practiced by the lesbian and phoenician women one may form an idea of the shocking depravity Of the reigning taste from the sneers which were lavished from Prine and Bacchus who steadily adhered to natural pleasures just say no the sexual moralizing and sexual restrictions adopted by the Christian world during the early Middle Ages stand in stark contrast to the Greek sexual ethic. Although ostensibly based on the Gospels themselves, official church doctrine was significantly influenced by the teachings of St. Augustine. According to Augustine, precepts, as a result of Adam and Eve's fall from grace, all manner of sexual activities were sinful, including penile-vaginal intercourse between a husband and his wife. Historian Vern Bulla summarizes St. Augustine's views as follows, quote, Though a coitus must be regarded as a good, since it came from God, every concrete act of intercourse was evil, with the result that every child literally could be said to have been conceived in the sin of its parents. Marital intercourse, though sinful, was justified provided that it was undertaken to increase the size of the Christian flock. But even then, enjoying the procreative act was viewed as a sin by many theologians, the Christian sexual ideal being one of the pleasureless reproductive intercourse, although some later theologians acknowledged that a modicum of pleasure could be enjoyed without shame as long as The couple did nothing to impede the natural function of procreation. It remained a sin to engage in intercourse solely for pleasure. As historian Jean-Louis Flandrin explains, There is a moment when the simple animal enjoyment, which is the pleasure of sex, drowns all other feelings, or so said the theologians. And many including Pope Gregory the Great in the 6th century believed that it was almost impossible to be pure after marital copulation. But what was certainly a mortal sin was to embrace one's spouse solely for pleasure. Thus, when intercourse was undertaken for the satisfaction of concupiscence, it was thought to be a safeguard to marital faith, which involved venial sin only. As a venial sin, the pleasure involved ranks with minor daily transgressions. And like other sins of its type, it was taken care of in the daily recitation of the Paternoster. The ideal, that's the end of the excerpt, the ideal of restraint in marital relations is further reflected in the belief of Saint Jerome that it is scandalous for a husband to treat his wife the way he treats his mistress. The canon law is also very clear regarding the ultimate purpose of marriage. Quote, the primary end of marriage is the procreation and education of children. Its secondary end is mutual help in the allaying of concupiscence. Thus, procreation secures the foundation for the institution of marriage itself, as well as providing the only licit justification for engaging in marital intercourse. Despite this ultimate emphasis on procreation, the canon law is not silent on the matter of pleasure. Indeed, the allaying of concupiscence, the lustful desire for pleasure, is cited as a secondary function for of the marital sacrament. That is, marriage is provided in part so that men and women can exercise their sexual lusts in illicit, Morally sanctioned manner, via the marital intercourse. Extramarital affairs were nevertheless common among medieval noble nobility. Not the Catholic Church's prohibitions on prostitution, homosexuality, and masturbation are well known, as perhaps is their scriptural basis. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. These prohibitions can be further understood in the context of a procreative bias. They may, in fact, be quite simply and concisely summarized by the admonition that. Quote, all non-procreative sex is sinful, Unquote. Lessons from the past given the, no, given the enormous disparity in how sexual behaviors have been conceptualized and practiced, it seems reasonable to propose that such behavioral forms are neither inherently sexual nor normative but that they are instead abstractions or permutations of what we call human sexuality this of course is not meant to minimize the critical significance of penile to vaginal intercourse for the survival of the species or more precisely For the furtherance of individual genes, instead it challenges the assumption that sexual behaviors must be be functionally relevant to genetic replication, that is, that reproduction is the exclusive, natural function of human sexuality. Natural in quotations. Sex, evidently, is what we make of it. If there is a single common denominator underlying human sexual expression, it's pleasure, we would argue, not reproduction. In the modern era, in any case, sex is much more likely to be pleasurable than procreative. Non-procreative sex is seemingly everywhere and everything, so much so that it is easier to define by negation. Non procreative sex encompasses those sexual activities that cannot result in conception. Non procreative sex, therefore, runs the gamut from infantile and prepubescent sexual explorations to postmenopausal and infertile geriatri- geriatric sex. Sex at the wrong time of the month or with a partner rendered permanently infertile. Is also non procreative as is sex that employs effective methods of contraception including condoms diaphragms and quote-unquote the pill homosexual sex is clearly non procreative but so are many of the activities in which heterosexuals engage including masturbation oral sex and intercourse and yes even passionate kissing If it isn't penile-to-vaginal intercourse, sans contraceptives, between two fertile individuals at the right time of the month, then it isn't procreative sex. Clearly, then very little sex is of the procreative variety, and given the current population explosion, perhaps this is a good thing. PREVIEW OF COMING ATTRACTIONS This book is divided into six broadly-themed chapters plus an epilogue in addition to this brief introduction. Chapter 2, Sex as Procreation, Is That All There Is? draws from a wealth of sources, including evolutionary theory, ethology, primatology, and the cross-cultural and historical records, to argue that despite years of repression and counter-programming, It is time to acknowledge the simple truth that sex and reproduction are conceptually distinct. Sexual pleasure, not reproduction, provides the foundation for sex, as it is commonly experienced. Reproduction, in fact, can reasonably be viewed as a byproduct of pleasure. In this chapter, we also show how sexual pleasure evolved as a means to ensure that people procreate and consider the implications of humanity's too great success in the area. We then examine from a philosophical perspective the seemingly inane question of why pleasure feels good and the limits of how good sexual intercourse can feel. Given the extreme power of sexual pleasure, it is not surprising that people have attempted to regulate it and harness it for profit. In Chapter 3, The Regulation and Marketing of Sexual Pleasure, we examine the manner in which sexual pleasure has historically been restricted and marketed. This chapter explicates the commoditization of sexual pleasure as distinct from the regulation and privatization of reproductive rights and kinship, and proposes a novel explanation for the genesis of sexual marketplace we also reconsider freud's views on the necessity of sexual regulation as a means of ensuring social stability and suggest how prostitution and pornography might have arisen from related social compromises adam smith friedrich engels and rather friedrich engels and ancient sumerian epic Gilgamesh are all discussed in chapter 4 the biology of sexual pleasure and chapter 5 the psychology of sexual pleasure we investigate the nature of the quote-unquote beast that is sexual pleasure in the first of these related chapters contemporary research on genetics hormones and the brain are examined in relation to the broader issues raised in chapter 2 and three among the topics discussed are the nature of orgasm evolutionary theories of evolutionary theories of female orgasm and homosexuality the evidence for pleasure centers in the brain and putative genetic and hormonal influences on sexual orientation. The conceptual foundations of homosexuality as a theoretical construct are also considered in cross-cultural perspective to determine what, if any, implications they have with respect to the ongoing search for a biological basis of sexual orientation. Chapter 5 continues the discussion begun in the preceding chapter by considering how personality, cultural, and familial factors interact to determine a person's sexual beliefs and practices. Chapter 7, parentheses, Porn, Tempest on a Soapbox, we examine the legal and historical foundations of the concept of obscenity and the extent to which these foundations rely upon the identification of sexuality with reproduction. The chapter begins with an examination of the extensive links between the anti-vice crusades of the 18th and 19th centuries, and then contemporary fears of masturbation and contraception. As we explain, similar fears of homosexuality have also found shelter under the anti-obscenity banner. More recently, a small group of radical feminists have allied, has allied itself with demagogues from the far right in the fight against pornography. Their arguments and the brief rebuttal are provided. We then suggest that the assumption that all depictions of non-reproductive sexuality are either pornographic or obscene conflicts with the intent of the First Amendment by discouraging open discourse particularly in the form of challenges to conventional views of morality. Finally, in a brief epilogue, we consider somewhat whimsically the future of sex. Will sex be necessary for reproduction in the quote-unquote brave new world? And will it continue to be interpersonal or will quote-unquote virtual sex replace the face-to-face encounters people currently cherish? If science fiction and the current proliferation of high-powered CD-ROM-based computer systems and sexually-themed software or any education indication, sex could become an increasingly solitary activity in the future. But is virtual reality the ultimate form of safe sex? Or the last refuge of the socially inept? Only time and the epilogue will tell.